open up to the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew. Last time, if you remember, we were talking about <clears throat> the scene on the mountain that they're calling the Mount of Transfiguration. We spoke of that last time, spoke of the power and the glory and the majesty that was revealed there, the unique scene that was there. We talked about the supremacy of Christ in that scene. That's going to kind of carry on into this next section. But there's more to, hopefully, what we're going to look at today than I think sometimes we take from it. Or sometimes we kind of miss, I think, the... The, the, the real point behind it. I think there's a lot of subpoints and context that's given, but we miss kind of the real point behind it. So we're going to look today, if we can, Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 14, says, And when they were come to the multitude, they've come down off the mountain now, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oftentimes he falleth into the fire and off into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you, and how long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured that hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For I say unto you, or verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Be removed hence to yonder place, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goes out not by, but by prayer and fasting. We're going to read Mark's account of it too, because again, as we've seen through this, sometimes the different... Apostles give a little bit different clarity through the synoptic gospel about what happened in this scene. And again, this is a scene that's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke and Mark's account start in chapter 9, in both of their accounts. Mark here, chapter 9, verses 17, says this, And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto you my son, which has a dumb spirit. And and wherever we take him, he tears him, he foams and gnashes his teeth and pines away. And I spake to your disciples, and they could not cast him out. And he answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him and fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came to him? And he said, of a child, and oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together... He rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried, and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and lifted him up, and he arose. 
And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we not cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. So you see Mark's account kind of gives just a little bit more of the story. But what's interesting, and kind of the two things that I want us to make sure that we're not, I guess we're clarifying right off the bat when we get started with this. Number one is that it is common for us sometimes to view this as a prescription versus a proclamation. Okay, It's common for us to view this as a prescription versus a proclamation. We talked about this in the very beginning with the Beatitudes, okay, um, in, in the reverse. Sometimes we, you know, we, we view the Scripture through different lenses or we kind of pick up maybe, maybe a main point that's not really the main point, okay? Here, sometimes we perceive that what this story is telling us is that we just need to have more faith and do it the right way and the outcomes that we want will come about, Okay? Well, if you just had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, i.e., if I just increase the level of faith I have, and if I do it the right way, so this can only come out by prayer and fasting, then, bingo, I've got the right method to now achieve whatever it is that I'm trying to achieve. So before I did it one way, or before in this situation, this worked for me, but now I'm in a different situation, I have to have a new prescription to fix this, okay? And that's not what this is talking about. The other thing that we need to try to make sure we don't do in this, in this section of Scripture is we don't explain away the amazing, okay? You know, we have a habit, too, when things get a little too supernatural, a little too spiritual, a little too, you know, a little bit too crazy sounding, then we start, you know, throwing it in the category of hoodoo, voodoo, or whatever it may be, and now we've got to somehow make it mean something other than what is directly meant. So we metaphorically or we over under spiritually or whatever we may do, we try to make it to a little more palatable kind of for our toned down, you know, Southern Christian that we have. Okay. But that's, that's, that takes out Jesus's main point. Okay. If we do that. All right. So those are the two things right off the bat. We have to be careful. So what is going on in this section of scripture? What's being talked about here? The father comes to Jesus asking for help for his son. Son has epilepsy, has a possession of a demon. Notice that there is kind of, as we've said before, there is a physical manifestation of a spiritual problem. The, man, the kid is possessed of a demon, okay? But when he's healed, he's saying he is cured, okay? Well, normally it just says they cast out the demon, all right? Here he not only cast out the demon, but he is cured of whatever the ailment was. All right, so there is a physical healing that's gone on simultaneously along with this removal of this demon. So there's a physical manifestation of a spiritual problem. And there's a lot of issues going on here. The kid is self-destructive. The kid has seizures. The kid has all this going on. He's been going like this for several, several years. Obviously, it is some length of time because Jesus asks him, well, how long has this been going on? And he says, of a child, which would just insinuate that he's not a child anymore. Okay. So let's say he started this when he was three, four, five, six, seven years old, and now he's 17. I mean, that's 10 years, all right? 10 years that he's been dealing with this. 10 years that his kid has been like this. 10 years he's got to keep his kid out of the fire in the middle of the house. 10 years he can't walk past a pool without the kid trying to throw in to drown himself. 10 years that the kid's falling apart and foaming and tearing and la- I mean, all this stuff. 
So you can imagine this father's despondency at this point that he's been trying to have someone fix his kid for 10 years or more with no success. I mean, any parent in that situation is going to be despondent. I mean, we get that way with our kids now. All you have to have is a cure that just has an earache that won't go away, okay? And after three or four weeks of the screaming and the gnashing of teeth and the not sleeping, you're going, do something to this kid. Somebody fix this kid, okay? Because I can't take it anymore, not only from a natural standpoint of I need some sleep, but also from a standpoint of you just don't want to see your kids hurting like that. That's just a very natural thing. And so in this father's case, he's very despondent. He's very... Feels like he's out of options. He's been dealing with this for a long time. Brings him to the disciples who had been casting out demons. You know, they had been sent out. Um, You can kind of find that in Luke chapter 10, which in Luke's chronology obviously falls after chapter 9. But, you know, this has already happened. He had already sent out his disciples. He'd already sent out some of his apostles in that case. And he'd sent them out and given them special gifts. And they could, uh, you know, heal people. They could do all these miraculous things. They could cast out demons in his name. Okay, and that was part of their spiritual gifting that they were given at this time as they were to go forth and they were to proclaim the gospel and preach, prepare ye the way of the Lord. You know, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and here comes Jesus. You know, Jesus was to come behind them. So they had already been doing this. All right. So now they come up and they come to this child and just like they have maybe 100 or 200 or 300 times before, they walk up to lay hands on this kid and nothing happened. So now the father's going, well, great. Now I've done this whole Jesus thing and not even it's working. Okay, your disciples tried it and they couldn't do it. So now both the father and the disciples are despondent because now the disciples are going, "Uh oh, what happened? Why isn't the magic working anymore? And then lastly, he comes to Jesus, not in a, as we will see, not in necessarily some kind of great, profound, faithful experience. He comes actually out of just desperation. Jesus, if you can, try to do something if you would. Jesus condemns not only him and kind of a mild rebuke, but also the entire generation the entire era, the entire group of Jews at this point, you know, that he is just tired of dealing with. You faithless and perverse generation, how long am I going to have to be with you? I mean, again, you got to see Jesus' despondency in this too, you know. He has been on deck for thousands of years waiting for this moment where he was going to come in as the Messiah. Now, of course, I'm saying all this from a kind of a natural point of view, but he's been waiting for this moment to come in and we know that he knows all things and we know that he knew everything that was going to happen and we knew exactly what his reception was going to be because first chapter of John tells you he came to his own, his own received him not. He knew that's how it was going to be, but you just have to see it through his lens as well that he's coming to a generation of people who've been waiting for him for generations and here he is and he steps on the scene and says, here I am and everybody goes, eh, Wait, aren't you, where's your faith? Where's your belief in me? And they're like, eh. And then he walks around and he finds Roman centurions and, you know, women with issues of blood and Samaritan women and all these people that he's going, well, here's the faithful generation. It ain't the Jews. Oh, you perverse and faithless generation. He uses that phrase on a couple of different occasions. Most of the time when this faithless generation is only wanting to get some kind of miraculous sign out of him. Give me some more stuff, Jesus. Show me a sign. And he says, oh, you perverse and faithless generation. No sign is going to be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
It says the Jews seek after a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we proclaim the gospel to you. So here he's kind of getting tired, you can almost imagine, of dealing with all this, of seeing all this again and again. His people who have been reared up in his teachings and have been preaching about the coming Messiah for generations and generations. And here he is and all they want are cheap parlor tricks. If you want to call them that now, I mean, raising people from the dead and things like that are definitely outside the realm of cheap parlor tricks. But I mean, they just want this stuff. They want these things. They want these sensational, tantalizing miracles, but they don't really want Christ. So then he casts out the demon and then the disciples ask him about it because obviously they're Despondent too, Lord, why didn't it work this last time? I mean, we did everything like we did the last time. We said the same prayer. We twiddled our fingers in the same way. We used the same oil, whatever it may be. We did the same thing, but we didn't get the same results. What is wrong with this picture? And you have to imagine their despondency because here they have been kind of rocking along. They've been doing some pretty cool stuff. In fact, you know, we'll read about how they're bragging about it. They have kind of gotten into this thing. like, look at what we can do. I mean, we can lay hands on demons and cast them out. That's pretty fantastic. Now, they were going ahead of Christ. So they were doing this outside of kind of the, the, the shadow of Jesus at times. So you got to imagine people are going to look at you and go, Peter, my goodness. What an amazing man you are. You can lay hands on people and cast out demons. How cool is that? And all the disciples were doing this. And you got to imagine they're going, well, look at us. Look at how cool we are. Look at our power. People were starting to kind of heap praise on them and follow them going, oh, goodness. Have you seen what Peter can do? Have you seen what John can do? Can you see what these guys can do? They are amazing people. And then all of a sudden, this child gets brought before them. They're like, oh, look, we got this. This is number 200. We've done this before. Watch. Boom. And then nothing happens and you know they keep hitting the kid on the head but no demon comes out so you got to imagine now all of a sudden people are going well you ain't nothing but a phony you're full of it you can't do this you're just what have you been doing before this must have just been fake before y'all are charlatans where's your power you don't have any power obviously jesus's name and power is not all that powerful because it's got an expiration date it ran out on you So now you can imagine they're getting a little bit worried because maybe this isn't going to last. So the question then is, how far can your faith take you? How far can your faith take you? The main point of this entire discourse is faith. The entire thing is about faith. It is about the active practicing of faith. And actually, it's really about the lack of the active practicing of faith. And there's three different groups of faithless people in this section of Scripture. One is the Father, the other is the people, and the third is the disciples. So starting with the Father. You know, with the Father... We don't have background on him. Don't even know if he is a Jew, a Gentile. Don't know what his history is. Don't know how often he went to synagogue. Don't know who he was raised by. All right. We have no backstory on him. But just given the backstory about what's going on with his kid, I'm almost willing to give him complete and utter leniency in how he is presented here. 
reason is, is he is absolutely frayed off the end of his rope. For years he has been dealing with his son. For years he has tried to find help, only to find that there is nobody in all of this land that can help him. He is, he is at his wit's end. He has nowhere else to turn. You look at the woman who had the issue of blood. She was the same way. For 12 years, she had sought after doctors and given all her money and livelihood and time and patience and everything and invested herself into them only to be let down time after time after time after time. I mean, now, we would all be ridiculously hypocritical if we would look at this father and be like, Oh, well, you, you just needed to have faith, man. Because he said, brother, I've been trying that for 10 years and had no results. We would be ridiculously hypocritical to pretend like this is not how we get at times. Or we go, I just don't know. I mean, I've tried. I've tried. I've tried everything. I've done everything. I've, whatever, I've been to every doctor with no results. I've prayed, I've fasted. I literally put on sackcloth and ashes. I paid tithes. I went to church every Sunday, Wednesday, everything. I did everything. And nothing has changed. Nothing is different. I've had no neon signs. I've had no great miraculous moments. I've had no, you know, chicken pot pie multiply to feed 5,000. I've had nothing, okay? I'm just in a place where I feel like I am by myself and there is no one who can help me. So when he goes to the apostles and he goes to the disciples and he says, can you help me? Jesus is the new thing, you know. Jesus has come on the scene. His disciples have gone out. They've done some pretty miraculous stuff. Other people have been healed. Other people's demons cast out. I'm going to give it a try. Why not? I've tried everything else and nothing has helped. Maybe this will be the one. I'm not expecting much. In fact, I'm already anticipating it's not going to work. And guess what? It didn't work. I tried Jesus' disciples. They looked like they were pretty legitimate. I went up to them and had them tried. And guess what? It didn't work again. Again. The greatest whatever could be. Again, it didn't work. Whatever magic they possessed, whatever, you know, didn't help. And like I said, the disciples had been doing this for X number of, you know, months, whatever it may be. X number of persons. When you look in Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, it'll talk about how the disciples returned to Jesus after a while. And they actually said when they returned, they were joyful saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in thy name. You know, man, look at the cool stuff we're doing. Now, Jesus kind of goes forward to go, hey, really, that's not too much to brag about. You know, I saw Satan descend like lightning from heaven. If you really want to rejoice in something, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the thing that really matters. And that really kind of ties right back into what we're talking about in this section of Scripture that we'll get to in just a minute. But they had been doing this. They had had plenty of successes. This time it didn't work. They don't know why it didn't work. So the guy's like, well, great. Here we go. I tried it again. I got my hopes built up. I thought maybe this would be the one and... Just like I expected, I got let down again. So, I mean, you can kind of hopefully 
empathize with this father in his situation. You can empathize where he's at. You can empathize that he's not at rock bottom. He has dug a hole under the rock. He is below the rock. The rock has been sitting on him for the last 10 years. And he's tried and he's tried and he's tried and he's tried, but he's been faithful, faithful, faithful to his son, trying to take care of him. A lot of situations that this mimics. But when he comes to Jesus again, in most of the situations we've seen, the woman with the issue of blood, even Jairus with his daughter, you know, Jairus crossed a lot of uh, boundaries that he wasn't supposed to cross going to Jesus. He ostracized or less, yeah, he kind of cast himself out from all of his, you know, pharisaical um, synagogue leaders. I mean, he really went out on a limb going to Jesus because Jesus was the enemy at that point in time. But he said, I don't care. My daughter is dying. I'm going to the only one that I know can heal them. I don't care what the cost is. And he did. Woman with the issue of blood. She came up to him. She's unclean. She's supposed to stay, you know, 200 yards, be yelling, hey, I'm unclean. Nobody touch me until she's healed of her issue of blood. She wasn't supposed to be in the crowd. She wasn't supposed to be touching people. They would become unclean. And then, God forbid, they couldn't go do their normal thing, okay? And there she goes crawling through the crowd on her hands and knees to grab his garment because she just knew that if she touched just the hem of his garment, he didn't even have to touch her, pray over her, say a whatever over her. All she wanted to do and needed to do, had faith that she had to do, was just touch his garment and she'd be healed. And he looks at her and he says, Woman, your faith, my goodness, your faith is amazing. And your faith has healed you. Here, this man does not come in that way. This man does not go, I know your disciples are just lackeys. They're just your underlings. I didn't expect for them to be able to do it. But I know you can do it, Jesus. If you just say the word, you don't even have to see him, touch him, be near him. I just know that you can speak, kind of like the Roman centurion said. I just know you can, you're just, you're God. I know you can do this. Instead, this guy comes up to him and says, but, you know. I tried your disciples and they couldn't do it. I've tried people after people after people and tricks and voodoo doctors. And I've tried everything. I've tried, you know, vitamin D3 and I've tried even apple cider vinegar. And nothing has gotten this demon out of this guy. I was going to say CBD oil, but that's a little too in vogue these days. Anyway, I've tried all these things and nothing will take care of this for him. And he doesn't say, but I know you can, Jesus. All those things are just temporal, goofy things. But I know you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the creator of the universe. He says, instead he goes, but you know what? What the hey? If thou can do it, if you can do anything. And he's not saying that as in you can do anything. He's saying that as if there is anything you could even do. Have compassion on us and help us. He's saying that from a, I don't know what you can do. You probably can't do anything. Your disciples couldn't do anything. I mean, even the littlest bit of something you could do if you could have just a little compassion on us. So that's not faith. (laughs) That's not, I believe in you, Jesus. I know you can do this. I have trust in your abilities. I know all. I don't know if you will. You know, that's the story we get from the leper in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, the leper that came to him who cried out after him, Son of David, have mercy on me, said, Lord, if you will, I know you can make me clean. The leper came to him and said, I don't doubt your ability. 
healing my leprosy is nothing to you. And I recognize you as Lord. You are Lord Jesus Christ, son of David, Messiah, God incarnate. You are him. I know who you are. I believe in your ability to the uttermost. Now, if it is your will, if you will do this, heal me. And Jesus says, brother, I will, you know, amen. Let's go. This man comes from not a will you do it, it's a can you even do it. And again, I'm not going not to bash the guy. The guy is in a bad spot. I think that's what makes it so palpable and so real is that the guy is where he is. And all of us come into those same situations. We don't come into the situations like... Most of the time, we don't come into the situations like the leper or like the woman with the issue of blood. Most of the time, we're coming in it in this situation. We come in it a lot of times, unfortunately, like, well, I've tried everything else. Maybe I need to talk to Jesus about it. So he didn't come to Jesus in a faithful, believing capacity. He very much came in a doubtful, desperate attempt. You know, it's kind of like the fat diet thing. I want to lose weight. But I've been through every diet. I've tried working out. I've tried exercise. I've tried low carb. I've tried high carb. I've tried high fat, low fat, Atkins, keto, paleo, whatever it is. But then somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, but have you tried the whole 30? Have you tried the keto, paleo, Pacifico, whatever diet? Because this one really works. And you would say... I'm desperate. I want to lose weight. I don't expect it's going to do a lot, but no, I haven't tried it. So why not give it a whirl? That's almost how this man has come. I'm desperate. I have nowhere else to go. Well, of course I'll try. I'll try anybody you stick in front of me. If someone can just do something to help my child. Now, The reason I said it was a gentle rebuke in the beginning is because I think the faithless and perverse generation comment that Jesus makes, I think, is more pointed to the people around this man than it is to that man. This multitude that had run after him, I think, were running after him because they were going, Ooh, look, Jesus' disciples couldn't do it. Let's see Jesus fail too. Or the other half of them could have been coming going, Ooh, Jesus is going to do another miracle. That's all we really care about. Show us another cool thing that we can see and grab a hold of and carry with us for another 30 seconds or something. Same reason why Jesus would tell him in other places, you don't follow after me because you follow me. You just follow me because I give you fishes and loaves. I give you miracles. I give you all these fantastic things. Jesus' response, though, to the Father here is why I think it's a little more pointed at them and not him. And, again, to show a little bit of a different level of the relationship that Jesus is entering into with this man. If it had been one of the Pharisees, if it had been one of those hard-hearted, unregenerate Pharisees, he'd looked at him and said, you don't believe that I can do this because you're not my sheep. You know, he says that to him before. You don't believe my words because you're not my sheep. You're of your father, the devil. That's why, I mean, that's, you know, he entered into a dialogue with them. A lot of times there was no mixed words. There was no, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to try to bring, he just like, guys, look, you know, lack of a better word, you're toast. You're not, I mean, you don't believe me because you are not mine. Okay. And there's nothing that's going to change that. Here, though, with this man, he doesn't look at him and go, well, you don't believe me because you're not mine. Take off. See you later. Adios. And he walks off. No, instead, he enters in with this man. He says, look, if you can believe, all things are possible to those to believe. That is like 
coming into the most desperate, despondent moment in this father's life and saying, man, you're not at the bottom. There's actually an infinite amount of possibility above you. You're just looking in all the wrong places. You're not trusting in the only place, the only person who can do the impossible. Yeah, you've tried everybody. You even tried the disciples and they have done some things that I have allowed them to do. But they're not the ones. They're just disciples. But if you can believe, all things are possible to those who believe because it's not what you're believing in, it's who you're believing in. That's a profoundly amazing statement. You know, again, and that's where we kind of you, you see statements like that and immediately you try to kind of steer the car away from what Jesus is talking about. You start going, oh, well, yeah, no, and, you know, but then you know, let's not get too crazy and too over spiritual and let's not get too amazing things. Now, the reason that I think that it means exactly what it means and the reason that I think when he says, if you just have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains and it meant mountains is because of this statement right here. He's saying, I have profound power in me. Okay, Christ. Right? You're believing in me, not yourself. You're not believing in your own faith ability. You're putting your faith in the only one who can do the miraculous, amazing things. Okay? So if God wants a mountain moved, I don't doubt his ability. Okay? If God wants to heal this boy that nobody else could do, I don't doubt his ability. If God wants to create world peace, if he wants to cure AIDS, if he wants to eliminate cancer, I don't doubt his ability. Okay, and that's what Jesus is trying to tell this man. All things are possible with the one who can do the impossible. Okay, there is nothing. He even tells disciples and others before that. He says, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are are possible. So, I mean, he's made the point before you're putting your you're actually not putting your faith in God. You're lacking faith in God. You're putting your faith in Man and natural things and those and that's why you're in this position. Oh, faithless generation. That's why you're despondent. That's why you're depressed. That's why you feel like there is nowhere else to turn to because you're looking around you going, well, who around here can help? And I'm just going to tell you, you're looking in a sorry bunch of folks. Say, well, what about the disciples? Even they were sorry. The only reason they could do what they could do is because of God. They didn't just wake up one day or meditate on a mountain or, rap, or you know, grab some kind of magical crystal and that enabled them to do this stuff. They were only able to cast out demons because Jesus said, go do it, okay? Where I send you to go do it, I will do it, okay? It was God's power in them that allowed them to do that. And obviously we can see it was only God's permission that allowed it to happen. Because when you come up to this case, it didn't. That's where people kind of get off the rails and they start talking about like, oh, well, if this would happen, then it always happened. No, I mean, you know, sometimes this is arguments against spiritual gifts and say, well, obviously there's no more healing gift because, you know, Paul didn't heal that one dude at that one place on his way back. And if he'd had the gift, he would have been able to do it. So obviously he was wearing out. No, it's just God didn't want him to heal that guy. Okay, that's why God didn't always allow him to heal everybody. Jesus didn't heal everybody. Okay. There were still people dying in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus was there. Just because Jesus did it to this group over here doesn't mean he walked in and said, you know what, to show my miracles, boom, death's gone for a week. It's done. He didn't do that. 
He healed where he went. He healed when he went and when he wanted according to his will. Paul was given the gift to heal people at that moment with whoever he was saying pray for. He wasn't healing that person. Didn't mean he didn't have the gift. Didn't mean God took it away. Said, oh, no more, no more healing. Time's passed. No, that person just wasn't going to get that healing for whatever reason God desired to do it that way. Same thing with this one. I mean, that's what that's what we deal with today. People say, well, we believe that God can heal people, right? We still believe that, Amen. right? Amen. Okay. Does God heal everybody? Much to our chagrin, much to our despair, sometimes, no, he doesn't. Does that mean that he's not healing people anymore? That's a goofy argument. <laughs> what kind of backwards logic is that? Oh, it must mean that spiritual gift is gone. No, it just means that God isn't choosing to do that then. Now, we can't rationalize that sometimes, which is the hardest thing for us. That's what we want. We want it rationalized. Why? Why does this not? Because I have a paradigm in a box that this should fit in, and it's not fitting. Why? And unfortunately, the answer is, I don't know. Only God knows. And here's the beautiful thing about it. And let me just ask this. Do you want God to be rational as we are? Our rationalities are finite and built out of paradigms that are all within a time-based box that has limits. God's rationality is expansive, infinite, and eternal. He knows things from beginning to end. He makes decisions, has made decisions off of things that he knows every possible outcome and minutia of everything. He's the one that knows what the molecules are going to do if this over here does this. I mean, he's the only one that knows that. His rationality is the most rational, but to an infinite degree. Our tiny little brains can't even fathom the corner of his mind. And we don't want it that way. That would bring him down to our level. That would mean that he's not God anymore. So, no, we can't rationalize it, and that's what makes it so hard. But, man, we don't want to be able to rationalize it. That would mean that God is no longer God thinking on levels that are beyond our levels. So it's a profoundly amazing statement where he says all things are possible to those who believe it. I don't think that is in any way hedged in because God's not hedged in. God is making, Jesus is making a very profound theological statement. I am God. God is God. And with God, all things are possible because God is God, okay? If something was impossible for God in that way, then God would cease to be the sovereign creator and all-knowing, all-powerful being of the universe. He would be less than whatever it was he couldn't do. So in those situations, you don't want... I mean, I'm not going to explain this away into any other way. Jesus said, all things are possible to those who believe. Those who are trusting in Jesus and his ability realize that they have Jesus with all of his ability to rely on. And then it falls back to exactly how the leper reacted. I know you can. All things are possible with you if you will. Jesus tells us how to pray. You pray and anything you pray in my name will be given to you if you pray according to my will and my Father in heaven grants it to be so. So those statements here, these absolute statements like this just freak people out. They're not freak. It shouldn't freak you out if you just realize the context in which they are given. 
This wasn't an open-ended thing that said, if you just prayed the right way, and if you just prayed and fasted the right way, all things would be given to you, whatever you want, with no prescription or restriction or anything. He didn't say that. He just said, you're praying and trusting and having faith in the one who can do all things. So therefore, all things are possible to you. Okay? You know, people will say, like, about the money in your bank. All right, let's say you had a million dollars in the bank. Technically, you have access to that million dollars of yours, right? It's yours. You have access to it. I have faith in it. I trust that it's there. All right? It may just be some numbers on a computer, which is kind of freaky, but, you know, I know it's there. Now, guess what? There's some restrictions on what you can do with that. You can't just walk into the bank one day and say, all right, I want all the millions out in dollar bills. Cash, right now. Give them to me. It's mine. And I want them. There's some restrictions on that, aren't there? There's some parameters in which that works. Technically, you have access to it, but you don't necessarily have the access to it you think you do. We have access to the God who can do anything. He created the universe, all right? And he says, if you will trust and pray in me, I will give you all things in this way, according to my will, because I'm like that bank that's only going to dole it out to you in a right way that's going to work towards my will and to my being and towards the... Everything or whatever the parameters are, he sets. His will. That's a good group all, catch all thing to encompass the things that we have set around the infinite gifts that we are given. That's sovereignty. Otherwise, we would be like the crazy people who want to rush the bank and get all our money out at one time and then cause the collapse of the economy. We've seen that, okay? That's why there's restrictions. That's why, you know, anyway, going forward, the people are the second group. The people are very explainable, and it's not very shocking. Oh, you don't have faith? I'm not shocked. It doesn't surprise me, especially with the Jews here. It's like, it doesn't surprise me. This has kind of unfortunately been your M.O. going all the way back to the Exodus. We've been reading about this on Wednesday nights. All you have to do is get a little ways out from a miracle of God, and they go, yeah, but look, you brought us out here to die. Yeah, look, you're just giving us bread, you know, directly from heaven. Yeah, look, you're just giving us quail, but we wanted something else. Yeah, look, yeah, look. You sent serpents amongst us, and now we've got to look at the brazen. I mean, all these things that happen, you have seen with the Jews, which is just a microcosm of the human race. That even with the presence of God, the almighty power of God, the expressed miracles of God in your life, you'll still look at them and go, yeah, but you know what? We'd rather have a golden calf. It's just easier to manage. Not as many restrictions. He doesn't like smoke and burn mountains up. And he doesn't, you know, scald us with his holiness. I mean, there's, I just, I just want a golden calf. I just want something I manage. Now, I still want your stuff, God. So still give me your promises. Still give me your land. Still bless me with all these things. But I don't really want to have any responsibility or be under your sovereign will or anything like that. I'd rather just be my own man. So in the same way, they've come up to him. We want to see more stuff. Don't really believe in you. Don't really believe in your abilities. Don't believe in who you are. But we just want to see something cool today. So cast this demon out. Let's see another cool thing. Give us your stuff. We want your blessings. We'd love for you to come back as the Messiah and reestablish that whole kingdom of Israel thing. We just don't really want you as a king. We want to be our own people. We want to have our own king. We want to be the dominant Middle Eastern power again. But we don't really want authority to Jehovah. And we may placate you a little bit. We'll set up your temple and we'll offer sacrifices. But we'll also offer sacrifices to Baal and whoever else we want to. Because, hey, we want what we want. 
So when he looks at him and says, oh, faithless and perverse generation, doesn't necessarily shock me all that much. When all they want is to see another miracle, doesn't really shock me all that much. They want the stuff. Don't really want the whole relationship with God thing. They just want the stuff. I want the fishes and loaves. That was pretty cool. Can you do that again? So the people's desires for more miracles without any belief in Christ, without any faith, it's just kind of par for the course. And it's just really the greater reality, the greater pitfall that we all can fall in. We can all fall in this same situation where we are after God's stuff and not necessarily after God. I'm going to pray because I want your blessings. Relationship, meh, we'll see how that goes. I want you to do the miraculous things in my life when times get hard, but then when times are good, you know, I just kind of do my thing. and Or maybe like we were talking about at the beginning, well, everything's going bad. Now I'll turn to Christ and now I'll talk to him and now I'll seek him out after I've run all... Courses and probabilities, and after I've expended all things on everything else besides you, now I'll turn to you, and now I'll come to you because I need your stuff. Once things are fixed, if God graciously, mercifully fixes them, then, you know, move on and keep rocking along to the next crisis comes along. So we have to be careful that we're not just after his stuff either. The disciples are the most surprising one because they're the ones who've been around him the most and seen the most and been with him the most, and you would just expect of all people... The disciples would be the ones that would pony up and say, Lord, you can, yeah, we know why you can do it. But even they, as he'd say, you, you're, you're just as faithless as this father. You're just as faithless as this crowd. You don't, but you're not, you're not relying on me. You're going back to your own magical abilities. You've gotten so enamored with the fact that you can do these miraculous things that I have given you, that you have started worshiping and relying on the gifts Instead of the one who gave you the gifts, okay? And this goes back, I mean, again, as we keep flipping back to the Old Testament, you go back to when the brazen serpent was put up as that emblem, that thing that was saving them from the snake bites, okay? It was just the thing that God used in that way. It was just a means to an end. God was the one that kept them from dying. That brazen serpent had no kind of medicinal properties he didn't like stew some kind of medicine that you drank that's not what happened you looked at him an obedience factor got you out of death but god was the one who didn't kill you okay god was the one that prevented that god was the source of salvation in that moment of course though you fast forward a few years or whatever that brazen serpent's propped up every so often going hey you worship the brazen serpent look how it saved you that day in the wilderness and people bowed down and worshiped it it was toted around in the ark they would bring it out every so often. Say, remember the serpent? Worship him. You're going, you dum-dums. That serpent didn't do anything for you. Who saved you in the wilderness? God saved you in the wilderness. The serpent was just a means to the ends. But unfortunately, by our nature and by our, our normal way of operating, sometimes we start worshiping the means. We worship the church as being the means to which... I find whatever I need. The prayer or the fasting or the things and we put them out there like, oh, well, if I just do them enough in this certain way, then they're going to be the thing that delivers me because this one time God just so happened to use those. God would tell some people in Israel, if you'll fast and pray and repent, I will forgive you. Okay, good. 
Well, now, any time trouble comes along, if I just fast, pray, and repent, and sit back, boom, there it should be. God's going to do it because that's the formula, right? Using the stuff. Using the means. Saying, man, if I just do these actions. Well, one time some dude prayed all night, and then look what happened. Okay, so I'm going to go do that and see what happens, and then it doesn't happen the way that I think it should. And Jesus prayed all night. He still went to the cross. In fact, in Jesus' prayer, he said, take this cup away from me. I, wanna, I, I don't want to go through this. This looks rough. I'm, 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 not I'm, I'm feeling the weakness that is within my flesh. If anything, please let this cup pass from me. But then nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And the Lord said, this is my will. This is my will. So Jesus got up and started marching. The disciples here, though, have started worshiping the means. They come up to Jesus and they're going, man, why couldn't we cast them out? Where's our power, Jesus? You know, where's that again? I want that thing that we could do again. Why couldn't we do it this time? And Jesus is going, if you just had faith, if you just had faith. And that is not the prescription there, okay? He's not saying, oh, well, you only have the faith of less than a grain of mustard seed, and now you have to get the faith of a grain of mustard seed, and then you would be able to do this, and only this group of demons is cast out by prayer and fasting. So what you need to do next time is, is get more faith, pray and fast in this way, and then these demons will come out. You just had the wrong prescription. You were approaching the problem in the wrong way. Next time you know the right formula. Take off. Go at it again. If you find another obstacle, let me know. The next time what it'll be is, is you turn around three times, pray at night, and throw salt over your shoulder, and then that one will come out that way. That's not what's going on here. He's saying, if you had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be removed, and it would be removed hence. I'm going to tell you that they all had faith of the grain of a mustard seed. Everyone that's born of the Spirit of God has faith. Okay, They're given faith by the Spirit of God, and it's according to the proportion that God determines. So either God determined that all these people had less than a grain of mustard seed faith, which I don't necessarily think, or that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you have plenty of faith. You're just not looking in the right direction. You're looking back on yourselves going, yes, this faith gave me these abilities to do these miraculous things. And then you're looking back going, but why are these miraculous things not working for me anymore? And Jesus says, because you're not looking to the one who gave you the miraculous things. You're looking to yourself. It's God that enabled you to do that. And what you did was is you got a little too far off the leash and you started going, it's me that's able to do all these things. And God quickly pulled the leash back and goes, no, it's not. See, no, you can't do that on your own. No, you aren't just innately awesome. And that's why you can cast out demons. The only reason you were able to do that is because I was graciously allowing you to do it. And this time I didn't, so that you would realize, in my opinion, this time I didn't. So that you would realize, it's not you. It's not some kind of special thing you have obtained. It's not some kind of miraculous gift in you outside of me. It is me inside of you. You're just the vessel. Now, yeah, use this analogy before, you know, copper wire is what brings electricity into the building. I have yet to hear someone worship the copper wire. 
Nobody sits there and goes, ah, the air conditioning. Praise be to the copper wire. How glorious the copper wire is. What would we do without the copper wire? Well, there's a lot we wouldn't do without copper wire, but nobody cares because they think of the electricity that gives you the power to use the air conditioner. The copper wire is just a means to the end. It's just a vessel. It's just carrying the current. Does a great job of it. That's why we use it. Only really thing we know they can do it. I mean, that's why we use it. So I've been used for like millennia now, okay, as a current transfer. But nobody worships the copper wire because they understand the copper wire to be only what it is, a means to an end, a vessel through which the power is transferred. But the power comes from the power. Even the air conditioner in and of itself, the amazing engineering marvel that it is that we would all die miserable deaths without... It's still, by itself, you go, oh, the air conditioner is great, but if it didn't have electricity, it wouldn't work. So it's the electricity that we look at as the marvel of the age, the way that we can create that. That's the thing that gives the ability. So in these same situations with the disciples, with the people, okay, with the Father, all of them, their faithlessness, their lack of faith was this. We are failing to recognize God. Who is the one that can heal my son? God. Now, he may use one of your disciples. He very well could have used one of his disciples to cast out that demon just like he did a thousand times before. He chose not to in this case, I think, to make this entire point. Okay, But that being said, he could have or he himself in this very moment could do it. To lay his hands on his son and say, you know what? You're out of here. You notice Jesus didn't pray and fast to get it out. Obviously, that demon didn't need praying and fasting to get it out. The disciples needed praying and fasting because they had missed who it was that was doing all this. He was telling his disciples, guys, you need to go pray and fast because you are not relying on God. You have failed. You have missed that mark. God's given you this great gift of faith he has filled you with your holy with his holy spirit he is the one that gives you all these impossible things he is the only one that can do that so then in our situations that we face in life when we get despondent or whether we're not despondent maybe we're not everything's just cruising along nobody's like throwing a rock through the back window or anything like that life is just hunky-dory as they would say okay everything's going right whether we're on that end of the pendulum or on the end of the pendulum where we feel like we have tried everything maybe we even have tried quote unquote the church and we still are where we are then what i would tell you is the same thing that jesus would tell the father Jesus was telling his disciples, really, if you can just believe in God, all things are possible. And you immediately want to respond, yeah, but it didn't work in this situation. It doesn't matter. It was possible. It was possible. Maybe it didn't happen the way that we thought it would happen, but it was possible. That is a clarifiable definitive answer 
It was possible. It was not impossible. It was not out of the realm of possibility. It was very much 100% possible, just like when there was nothing and God said, you know what? Light. Boom. Possibility abounded. No one stood back there and go, I don't think this is really going to come off the way he thought it would. The Holy Spirit wasn't going over there going, hey, Jesus, I really have some doubts about this. You know, we really have never created anything before. And then here we go. It didn't happen. God walked on the scene and said, let there be light. And they were all like, ooh, let's watch and see how it happens. Because it most certainly was possible. Why? Because God is possibility in that way. So it's not that it wasn't impossible. The hard thing to grip with is, was it according to the will of God? And a lot of times we're going to come to the, the, the realization a lot of times that that's just, that wasn't the way we thought it was going to go. We wanted it that way. We really, 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 really wanted it that way. But it just wasn't the way that God wanted it to go. And we would love to try to rationalize it and make it all fit into the box and say, oh, yeah, because, you know, and sometimes we use it. I'm not saying it's a negative, but, you know, sometimes we'll go to the Old Testament and say, see how here in the Psalms or the Proverbs it says that someone who dies young, you know, gets saved from wickedness in the future or whatever it may be. Maybe that is the case. Who knows? The knowing isn't the isn't the thing. Even if we came up to that conclusion, does it make it feel any better? If you go, oh, yeah, well, there was a good reason why. Why? Well, I don't know the good reason, but there's a good reason why. That's not where the comfort comes from. The comfort comes from knowing that the God with whom all things are possible and with whom has a rationality that is infinite and eternal is calling the shots. He is sovereign. He's the one that's in control. Not some fickle, natural selection And not some vengeful, wrathful deity, but the almighty, all-merciful, all-powerful God of the universe, Jesus Christ. He's the one that's in control. And with him, all things are possible. That's where the hope is. Because we're studying. We're going to find hard times in different situations that come up in the future. And you know how we're going to get through them? Because we rely and believe on the one with whom all things are possible. So may God bless us to do that.